from the land of the Wajak Noongar people in Perth, Western Australia. The Word and Image podcast series represents a collaboration between the John Curtin Gallery and the Curtin University Creative Critical Imaginations Research Network. In this podcast series, staff and students discuss and share their works of creative writing produced in response to exhibitions of artwork at the John Curtin Gallery here on the campus of Curtin University. The first instalment in our podcast series is called Where the Ink Falls and contains ekphrastic responses to Moon in a Dewdrop, an exhibition of work by the artist Lindy Lee. In this podcast, we explore the theme of the composition process. How does one produce a work of creative writing? How is this process different when you're writing from a prompt, such as a work of visual art? What inspires a creative writer, and how do they bring this vision to fruition? In this podcast, you will hear from four Curtin University staff members, Chen Gong, Per Henningsgaard, myself, Paul Gardner, and Rachel Robertson, as they read and discuss their work. First up is Chen Gong, reading her poem, The Narration of the Cosmos. Chen wrote firstly in Chinese, and then translated her work into English. Here's the Chinese version. Hong Huang Chen Shu Jelly Yu Hua Shed Wu Dao Lu Zai Jiban Shan the Yao Hen Yu Ru O Ye Shai Gu the Yu Guang Shu Mu Chen Yin Je Ba Xin Shi Juan Jin Yan Luan Gu Lao the Liu Sheng Ji Yi Chen Yi Chen Xi Shui Bu Duan the Bian Huan Je Diao Xing Shi Je Sang Yin 时而疑惑于闪电的提示, 朽木庄村皱的手臂云雾一遍遍擦拭河面给你头上一个暴力滴答滴答此语点 
Thank you, Chen. I think it's particularly fitting to begin with a poem in Chinese, given that the artist Lindy Lee is herself Chinese. I want to ask you, what aspect of Linda's work resonated with you, and how did those things influence your poem? Uh, I think both the theme and the form resonate with me. When Rachel first approached me about the project, I actually had no idea how this is going to be like. I didn't know Lindy's work, and I wasn't particularly sure about how to write from a visual response. Um, but as soon as I heard the title of the exhibition, Moon in a Dew Drop, my heart just missed a bit. It's just so beautiful and resonate with me with the aesthetics and philosophy that I grew up with. The Zen idea of to see a world in a wildflower and a body tree in a leaf. Um, These Buddhist ideas of impermanence as well, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. All the things that I feel is in my blood, but so hard to share with others across cultures. Lindy just did it. Um, and also the idea of not struggling, but let beauty emerge. So in terms of the forms, um, East Asian calligraphy and its balance of control and energy, order and dynamism is very uh, unique. So in Chinese calligraphy, the brush becomes the extension of the writer's arms and indeed his or her whole entire body. If you recall in Zhang Yimou's um, 2008 Olympics opening ceremony, the dancer actually uses his toe and to, to actually draw this um, beautiful, um, you know, through um, dance movements the, to draw this beautiful art works. And uh, so the artist's stroke not only suggests the movement of the body, but also the inner qualities of the uh, artist. Um, so it is very abstract and expressive. Um, and I think um, Lindy just uh, um, exactly caught that essence of this type of art. Um, so to, to, who sought to convey emotions through um, paint. And I was very much drawn to it. Um, so, um, you know, the rhythm and the, the, all the abstract of the calligraphy, Lindy just did it with ease and so cleverly. And the idea of um, the flung ink as well. So, yeah, I think um, both the theme and the form actually inspired me with my poem writing. That's a really interesting insight from Chinese perspective. Now, you wrote firstly in Chinese. Is that because you felt more comfortable writing Chinese than English, or were there other reasons for doing so? Yes, um, Chinese classical Chinese poetry has a very long tradition, thousands of years. Um, so a Chinese uh, who actually went through the Chinese educational system is expected to recite, um, you know, at least a few dozens of classical poems, if not hundreds. So uh, I've absorbed the rhythms and the um, rhyme schemes and meters um, through my education. And uh, one important aspect of classical Chinese poetry is that it was generally designed to be chanted or sung with or without musical accompaniment. 
So I'm naturally more familiar with um, the uh, Chinese poems, its rhymes, its 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 uh, rhythms, and its meters. Um, this is um, harder to do for me to do it in English. Um, my Chinese poem is actually actually rhymes, but my English one doesn't. Um, another aspect is the intense relationship. Um, of uh, poem with other forms of Chinese art, um, such as Chinese painting and Chinese uh, calligraphy. Um, there's a saying that um, uh, we all know in, uh, in Chinese culture, 诗中有画,画中有诗. Um, so this expression highlights the connection between poetry and painting um, uh, in their ability to create aesthetic imagery. And this, this idea was first put forward by, uh, by a very famous Chinese poet called Su Shi. And, um, uh, okay, so the term means that good poetry and painting should be fused so that a spontaneous and novel aesthetic realm can be created by a picturesque poem or a poem picture. Um, so this this idea is very profound. Um, has very profound influence on Chinese poems, and I think um, you know this is um, uh, more easily um, of uh, you know for me to to catch in in Chinese uh, rather than English. Okay, thank you. I think it's time to listen to the English version now, Chen. If you'd like to read that to us. The narration of the cosmos. Here is the dance of the tongue of fire, recorded in the tooth marks of burning holes. Like the moonlight, sifted by the lotus leaves, the trees are muttering to themselves, grinding their feelings into the growth rings, one circle after another. The creek changes the tunes, constantly trying her voice. Sometimes shocked by the thunder's prompts, sometimes confused by the wind's advice. Dense raindrops, sparse raindrops. Here time has tripped over. The jumbled rocks collect its messy steps. Mountains and the thousands of hammer blows extend to the distant horizon. The river robs its shadows. The fog polishes the surface of the lake, ceaseless and tireless. Light raindrops, heavy raindrops. Dotting stroke, shading stroke, dying stroke, Tinting strokes are my exclusive stunts. Baking ink, breaking ink, smashing ink, amassing ink are my everyday tai chi. Rosy clouds, shaved cheeks, shiny pebbles, bleached teeth, rotten stumps, crinkled arms, white raindrops. Black raindrops. This is my narration. 
Too short to have a beginning. Too long, it never ends. All laid out clearly. I just invite a little vibration from you. It seems that all you need is a flicker finger on your head, which I did with a Peter Patter. These raindrops, those raindrops. Translation involves a process not just of finding a set of words to replace the original words, but words that capture the feel and imagery of the original. Did you experience any challenges as you translated from Chinese to English? Uh, yes, I do.、Um, but I think Lindy's own artwork is heavy on translation. Her early works, the copying of the original works into something different. And her later works as an act of translating traditional practice into modern art. So、um, uh, I was fascinated by this process,、um, and I, when I worked as a journalist,、um, I used to cover the beat of traditional、uh, Chinese fine arts, and I was aspiring to be an expert and、uh, tried my hand on calligraphy as well, like Lindy, and I failed. So it was. <laughs> Very、um, uh, inspiring when I see Lindy's work. She just bypassed these traditional trained skilled、uh, skills and let nature do the work. And this deliberate withdrawal is very powerful and ingenious. It was、um, apocalyptic to me.、Um, so I think this translating process is how Lindy negotiates her Chineseness and Australianness. I would like to do the same. And this is how I pay my homage to Lindy's arts. So, do you feel these are the same poem in the Chinese version and the English version, or are they slightly different poems because they're written in two languages?、Uh, I think they are slightly different poems. They are like Lindy's early works. Photocopying the original work, you lose some elements of the original, but in, in the meantime, you gain new meanings in the process. Thank you, Chen. Now we hear from Rachel Robinson about her work, traces. Rachel, your essay responds to the same three works on paper by Lindy Lee that I was inspired by. Your work is divided into three sections, a bit like a triptych work of art. And in each of these sections, there is some prose that is in second person, and some in first person. Can you tell us why you wrote your essay in this format? One of the things、um, after I saw the exhibition was Lindy Lee was in Perth and she gave a talk about her process, and I was fascinated to hear how she compiles these particular three works that you and I have both written about. 
and she talked about first taking the paper and burning holes with a soldering iron and then she puts them out in the rain and throws ink at them and lets the rain fall on the ink. And so there's a sort of organic process of the work creates itself as well as her creating the work. Um, And there were three hung on the wall together and I was really wanting to respond to how inspiring I found her conversation about how she developed them. I started with three sections in my work, Traces, and the first bit of each section is is in the second person, as if I'm talking to Lindy Lee. And then I also then wanted to have my own response to the themes that her work um, embraces. And for me, there were themes of loss and traces and history and a whole range of other um, emotional resonances that came up when I looked at her work. So the first person part of my work is a is more re- personal response to each of the works and I've tried to sort of weave those together into a prose essay that has three sections. Now Rachel will read her essay, Traces. Traces. One. First, you burn. You take a soldering iron and you burn small holes in a two by 1.4 metre piece of thick white paper. The holes are random, or so you believe. You wave the soldering iron in a curve, choose a spot, and then it becomes space. An absence, created of presence, treacle-edged and uneven. You do it again, nearby, and then not so near. You create patterns that are not patterns, abstract waves of burn holes woven across the white paper. A cluster here, a cloudburst there. Your movements are fluid and precise. Intentionality is all, and yet you don't know what you are creating. You only know that you must burn. Next, you place your paper outside on a sheet of plastic laid on the grass. You fling black ink at the page, your arms swinging in wild, slow arcs, tossing unformed words on the paper. Channeling an ancient form of calligraphy, you hurl the line, the ink in lines and curls and dots. Watch it settle on the paper and travel, pool or drain. Now you wait. In your mind, you imagine a summer shower, sweet-tasting drops sparkling in the morning light. The rain that comes is a deluge, drenching your page. No matter, it is still life-giving, life-destroying water. You leave the paper, wet with rain and ink, and watch it develop its own finished story. It may rain again, it may not. The ink may fade a lot, or a little. The paper may curl or absorb more water. Everything is process and the process is no longer of your own doing. You watch and you wait. One day you will know that the process is complete and you will bring the paper under cover and allow it to dry. And you will give it a name. Raindrops on the river. I grapple with time with the long graceless fall towards my sixth decade, an altered face in the mirror, hands and feet colder, thought slower. 
gradual bodily transformations as the world around me changes more quickly than my mind can grasp. The second bedroom is empty now, the furniture gone, a single jacket in the built-in wardrobe, the bookshelf bare. A few old toys lie on the carpet. A school badge hangs alongside the scratches on the wall. Dust collects in the corners. Mostly the door is closed, keeping a familiar smell captive for just a little longer. The house creaks and echoes with new phantom sounds in the night. There are moments of stillness in this flux, a Chopin nocturne, a white tree trunk lit by the burnt orange afternoon sky, the sound of soft rain shaping the garden, an artwork that speaks of time and impermanence, of emptiness as infinite possibility. 2. This time you cluster your burn spots in a vertical central corridor You adjust the size and intensity of some of these burns, creating larger, darker circles among the smaller ones. You make fewer burns at the edge of the paper. There is no rhyme or reason, just a rhythm. This is how it will be. Soon you are flinging ink, small, smooth coils of black twisting from hand to paper, from right to left, low to high. Once again, rain soaks the paper, heavy and slow, as if a large colander sits in the heavens above you. Now is the time of waiting and watching, the time of not knowing and living with not knowing. This time the work's name appears in your mind as you wait, Water Plus Water, a title both literal and metaphoric. In the finished work, something creaturely becomes visible, a snake-shaped white space with sponge-like acolytes. The stretching and pulling of the ink runnels are abstract, but read as figurative. It could be cells seen through a microscope, or a galaxy seen from afar. I wonder if I have shrunk. The self, like paper, is porous and changing. Our boundaries are not distinct or rigid. Self and other merge and part, from our first home in the mother's womb to our final mingling with earth or fire. Our responsibilities likewise extend beyond our bodily boundaries. As with cells or stars, constellation is necessary. In water plus water, splats of ink channel the elements, becoming the calligraphy of the universe. Similarly, it takes all the forces of the universe to create each one of us. Burnt holes and flung ink convey the presence of the artist without depicting that presence. In the act of revealing, there is also concealing. I too reveal and conceal. Summon empty rooms and ageing hands to write of wounds that are hard to express, that are not solely mine to depict. Self and other, like the human and non-human, are deeply entangled. 3. Your mood is different today. You are tighter, more focused. You burn vertical holes in parallel lines. Ten holes, then a space 
then a single hole, then more space and five holes. You keep going up and down the page like a musician playing scales. You finish with a flourish, panting from the effort, fiercely glad. You throw your calligraphic blots at the page. Huge lobs of sooty black cover the whiteness, truffle rich in hue, heavy and deep. Days pass with no rain. You see the paper on the lawn every morning, every evening. You wait. The page waits. Finally, a light drizzle of rain and the paper is damp. Once more you wait for rain, and meantime the black ink is sucked and spooled, materiality working its craft. When rain finally falls, the page drinks and the ink flows. You bring it inside and leave it to dry. Watch the image of ink rain complete itself in front of you. Grief has walked alongside me now for six years. The cost of love, they say. She is an uncomfortable companion, sharp and searing at times, almost soothing at others, but always in flux. I grieve for a loved one whose everyday life is too hard and I grieve for myself, for losses past and future. It is named complicated grief, or it could be complicated love, I suppose like the burnt holes in ink rain that are present and absent at the same time, like the ink that is rain and the rain that is ink, traces of loss mark me, make me who I am. Hung in a triptych against the wall in the gallery, raindrops on the river, water plus water, and ink rain curl upwards at their bottom edges, living creatures still. On the wall behind are other works of cast light and shade. These shadow works exist only from the burnt holes, a vision summoned by absence. All things are interconnected, like the ink and rain on paper, my tears are reflected and absorbed in a universe always unfolding. We now introduce Per Henningsgaard, who wrote a prose response titled Flung Ink. Per, what was it in Lindy Lee's work that triggered your writing? There were lots of different things. So as I wandered through the gallery and looked at the different works, it, it summoned up all kinds of different ideas and associations. And I really was trying to figure out what direction I wanted to go because I had so many different ideas that seemed so disparate. Uh, so it wasn't until after I'd looked at almost all of the works in the exhibition that I sat down and watched a, a short documentary film about Lindy Lee's process. And that's what really helped all those different ideas cohere, because I was inspired by her process of, of flung ink, which is something that's pretty common to um, the readers who are, who are sharing their works with you today. Um, I was really inspired by the way in which Lindy Lee's flung ink process 
was so deliberate um, and she would have a very deliberate sense of, you know, where she was going to drop the ink initially. But then once the ink was dropped, once that initial movement was made, um, you didn't sort of know where it would go next. And there was a kind of unpredictability to it. So there was this deliberate start, um, but then where that would lead to um, was, was up to chance and up to a whole host of different factors. And so I used that as the inspiration for the essay that I wrote. So I took these deliberate images and associations that I had with Lindy Lee's various artworks, started in that deliberate way, and then kind of, kind of trailed off on each one before, before jumping to a brand new association or a brand new image. Now let's hear your essay, Pierre. Flung Ink. My 10-year-old son wants to take the lift to the top floor of the building that is shaped like a bisected Doric column. This is the level of the City of Perth library that is reserved for young adults, not children like my son, nor adults like me. The signs clearly state that we are allowed to visit, but not linger. While my son inspects the collection of superhero comics, I wander over to the new acquisitions shelf. There, I see the lilac-colored cover of The Greatest Thing, a graphic novel by Sarah Winifred Searle. I have seen Searle at bookish events around the city, though we have never spoken. I enjoyed one of her previous graphic novels, so I decide I will check this one out from the library today. When I finally read The Greatest Thing a week or so later, I discover that the teenaged protagonist is creating a zine with the help of an independent study that is supervised by an especially supportive high school teacher. The teacher reads her student's work and says things like, I love that where this is going, but Aubrey still feels very passive in her own story. I hope that, when my son is in high school, he has an equally insightful and encouraging teacher. Miss Smith teaches English at Bemidji High School, the only school in a town with a population of 12,000 for students in grades 9 to 12. Each year group has approximately 300 students though the numbers dwindle as graduation approaches and students drop out. Many years later, I would learn that the region has a school dropout rate of 8%, which is surely a contributing factor to the nearly 19% of residents living below the poverty line. The national average is 12% in poverty. However, the privation is hard to spot, especially among the students who live beyond the city limits, their homes tucked away in the rolling hills, and dark pine forests. In my final year as a student, Ms. Smith offers an elective in creative writing. I can't imagine how she got approval to do it since education budgets are tight and there are fewer than 20 interested students. In fact, even some of the students who enroll do not seem particularly interested. But I am deeply motivated, more so when Ms. Smith returns drafts of my early submissions with rapturous feedback written in green felt-tip pen. At the end of the semester, I submit a thick portfolio of poetry and short fiction. When I graduate, Miss Smith finds me after the ceremony to give me a poem-sized book titled The Pocket Zen Reader. Inside, I find she has written an inscription. Pair, for inspiration. Achieve great things. Achieve happiness. In the case of Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, the United States Supreme Court decides that a government school employee can pray when supervising students. The case is decided on the 27th of June, 2022, 
based on a football coach kneeling in prayer at midfield after games. What starts as a solitary habit becomes, over time, a team activity. Students join their coach, and the practice of prayer mingles with the tradition of the sport's pep talk. Will the supporters who rally behind a Christian coach be as supportive of a teacher who could be seen to be promoting Zen Buddhist philosophy, much less Islam? The Chinese accordion book is displayed like a set of red and black stairs laid on their side. Three of the pages are solid red. Seven pages contain inkjet copies in black ink printed on red paper of a photograph of a small jade sculpture of the Bodhisattva Huan Yin. This photograph has been reprinted many times until it is a blurred and faded copy of the original. The remaining pages, only three of them, contain dramatic ink splatters that immediately draw the viewer's eye. These few pages partake in the traditional calligraphy practice of flung ink, which is practiced by Buddhist monks. Meditation allows these monks to experience life directly without inter any interference from logical thought or language, so the act of flinging ink on the page immediately following a period of meditation is a representation of this enlightened state. Holding together this combination of emptiness, figurative elements, and abstraction is an unremarkable cover. Thick cardstock covered in black fabric. An accordion book has no spine, so the front cover stands two meters distant from the back. On a rare visit from my home in central Wisconsin to the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, I opt to pass a summer afternoon browsing the special collections of the Elmer L. Anderson Library at the University of Minnesota. My agenda is simple. I want to learn more about the book arts. Within minutes of beginning, even before I have found a table on which to rest my notebook and pencil, I happen upon an exceptional example of work in this field, The Plum Bob by Harriet Bart. A plumb bob is a weight that is suspended from a string, and it is used to provide a vertical reference line for building projects. Bart's book explores the long history of the plumb bob as a symbol for that which is timeless and true. However, it is not the book's contents that initially capture my attention. Instead, it is the box in which the book is housed, as well as the book's binding. When I finally reach the colophon, I find a description of the box and binding. In keeping with the modest origins of the plum, the binding and case materials are fabricated from common hardware store materials. The book has brass covers with the chemical symbol for lead, PB, hand engraved on the front. Steel hinges enclose the perimeter of the brass covers. Plum Bob is housed in a hinged masonite and beech case with aluminum covers overlaid with brass hardware cloth and trimmed with brass angle and brads. The binding and case were designed and fabricated by Jill Jevney. I am surprised to discover that the artist, Bart, is not the maker of the book's remarkable box and binding. I am even more surprised to learn that the bookbinder is my aunt. I later discover a rare book dealer advertising a copy of the Plum Bob for $2,400. I find as well that the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City has a copy of this book in its collection. I learn that the cataloging software used by libraries and museums does not contain a field in which to enter the bookbinder's information, so this detail is limited to the optional notes category. Catalogers enter as little or as much information in this field as they feel is necessary. 
the bookbinder's contribution is regularly omitted, so it is difficult for me to determine what other artists my aunt collaborated with in her practice as an edition bookbinder. But gazing at the blurry outline of my own head, reflected in the brass of the book's front cover, lit from above by the unflattering fluorescent strip lights of the special collections room, I am still ignorant of these facts. I am ignorant and in awe. I'm interested in your discussion of book covers and binding in your essay pair. As electronic books become more prevalent, do you feel there's been a resurgence of interest in the physicality of the print book and in how that might relate to works like Lee's accordion books? I I certainly think there has been a resurgence of interest in the print book um, and the print book as as artifact. Uh, So we see this in the production of deluxe editions that are sold in regular bookstores, but that are fancier and have maybe, you know, gold leaf on them or something like that. Um, But it flows over into the world of fine art as well, where we see artists who are more inclined to produce books as works of art, and then exhibit those books in galleries behind glass cases where we can't actually read or engage with them in the way that we would normally engage with a book but rather we look at them as a visual, a visual object or an artifact, which of course is the case for uh, Lindy Lee's work. Um, I think it's really interesting in her case that she's used the accordion style because that allows for the work to be exhibited as both book and artwork more readily because you can actually open the thing wide, wide open so that we can see pretty much all of the pages. Um, so certainly I think that's um, something that she's taking inspiration from is the the changing nature of the role of the book in our society today. Mm, How interesting. Book and art come together in some way, especially in the work of bookbinders like your aunt. That's exactly right. I wonder if your son will also follow in the bookbinding book creation tradition. Well, he certainly loves to create his own little books at home. Um, the, the, the bindings of them need a little bit of work. They're at the level of staples right now. But, um, but he'll get there one day. Our next work of creative writing is Flung Words by Paul Gardner. Here is Paul reading the first part of his poem. Flung Words The artist warrior robed in ancient ritual, eyes soft with anguish, languid moons averted. The grief of learning in torn times, tears in the diaspora. The schism of ancestry writ on an empty page. The complexity of displaced roots, desire, recognition. A sense to belong in a single space. To end coming or going. The circle of kin restored or anguish in loss. Knowing a declaration to belong is admission 
of unbelonging, the irony of connection in the othering of others. Delusion is captive misconception of self. Opportunity is lost too. A break with embellishment and desiring another explodes constraints. Truth is trust and faith as you look in the rearview mirror to see where you are going. A glance from now to what will be in the instant of connection, walking in the effervescence of rain and snaking light, dancing in percolation of thought, rising like bubbles in champagne, a tenderness that dissolves precise perforations, punctuated fabric of light, the symmetry of emptiness, a delicate frailty of illusion, in the art of rest. The essence of what we are is change. In a speck of time the fleeting surprise of existence dissolves. We are the mere fluttering of wings on borrowed country, the fallacy of hubris, some slight inhalation, an embodied chance, a brief displacement, held momentarily and exhaled in a single breath of joyless repetition. The laws of the cosmos open to possibilities and conflict of intuitive pull, a prosaic argument between the living and the dead. In oceans of time we move with myriad souls, an endless journey from you to me to you. The constellation of it all that has been before dissolves in a single moment and evaporates. In a mark is the essence of everything, a single heartbeat of infinite souls. It is the paradox of being, the infinitesimal calligraphy of the universe. Thanks so much, Paul, for sharing that beautiful and arresting first part of your poetic response to Lindy Lee's artwork. Now, I know from our conversations that you had a very particular preparatory process that you followed before writing that poem. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that process? Well, I went to the gallery one Friday evening just before it closed. Uh, in fact, they, they allowed me to stay even after it closed. And, and in the silence, I just walked around the gallery. I took with me an A3 sketch pad um, just to capture my thoughts as I, I looked at the various artworks. Um, and I think it was in the silence of looking at, at the work and also listening to the little documentary video of Lindy um, talking and, and showing us how she created some of her works that I can only describe it as a special relationship between myself and the artist. I think you don't find this when you go to uh, a gallery as a visitor. You, you, you gaze and you move on from, from artwork to artwork. But I suppose it was because I, I was um, going to write about this work that, that I went with a very different kind of mind, presence of mind. And I think in looking at the work and the silence and engaging with it, um, there developed a kind of affinity between the artist and myself and the works that I was looking at. And that was all recorded on my A3 sheet on that first day. And then the following day, on the Saturday, uh, Lindy was actually um, giving a lecture. And, and then there was a, um, a discussion with her. 
So I listened to that. And again, I took my A3 sheet. I had a new page. And I think inspired by her work, and particularly the work that, that, that is contained by a, an invisible circumference and a random amalgam of, uh, of brass shapes, um, I decided that I was going to create like a central a circle right in the center of the, the sheet. And as thoughts occurred to me and as she spoke, I recorded radial lines around this central circle of things that I might say in, in the poem. And then when I got to my computer, I selected from all the writings that I'd created and set them down in a very linear fashion. So that was a kind of second drafting process. And from that, I then created the poem. So it went through three kinds of drafts. That's a fascinating process that uh, really takes inspiration from, from Lindy Lee's own approach to her work, Absolutely. Uh, which is terrific. Yes. Um, so with that composition process in mind, I'd love to listen to the rest of the poem. Time taken in the revelation of silence, the solitude of synapses, a meditation before incarnation in the circumference of light, a journey to learn the locus of integrity and wisdom. She enters the foundry, nervous with possibilities. A space of flung crud forged in the philosophy of heat. Songs of pyromania incite the love of fire and choke of smoke. The intensity of heat incites meaning. Intuition is the compass of inspiration, anticipating the embodiment of chance to mark the world. It is accident and the weight of the ladle that decides the detail of random flow. The expression of splash and ripple contained by a friction, an invisible hand that draws a boundary in time, indivisible invisibility fossilized in perpetuity, the essence of everything encapsulated in a single drop. In the blankness of mind is the ghost of bronze, calligraphic casts, illusions of molten gold, forged departure, a finality at the weight of friction. The boldness of darkness emboldens light, a communion of stars, aspiration before dawn, between nothingness and being, not as dichotomy, but one within the other, a folding on itself, one with the other. A continuous loop from the macro to the micro and back again, conjoined in perpetual existence of intimate connections from a millisecond to infinity, some slight oscillation between being and becoming, a symbiosis, each revealed by parity of presence. There is less that separates and divides, a constant journeying from material to what is beyond touch, like grasping the shadow of a feather, the beauty of coincidence and the mindfulness of movement that avoids catastrophe, the shadow play of chance poured with practice hands, each mark, the embodiment of precise moments, of parts encapsulated in the whole. Unified disorder, chaos contained, a frenzy of direction, molten murmuration, explosions of space confined by fire and rain, the gyre held at the centre, an invisible fulcrum, the core of the essence of stasis and change in the craft of knowing, 
the moment freed from perception. We see the unique shape of being in the chaos of a brushstroke. The purpose of chance is the essence of meaning. Marks incite marks. Forge intersubjective coincidence between strangers. The silence of a mark raises its head in the breath of utterance and flies from paper to live with you. If in the story you see something, it already exists within you. A time to see the cosmos in a grain of sand. Again, so beautiful. Thank you, Paul. Uh, clearly, uh, both of us, as, as, as well as some of our other readers today, were inspired by that flung-ing approach taken by Lindy Lee and her artwork. I know one of the things that caught my attention was the way in which so much care and planning and attention can be hidden inside something that uh, feels or looks so random. Was that the same for you, or, or was it something else about the flung-ing approach? that captured your attention? I think it was partly that. And I think that as writers, you follow that a similar kind of approach. You, you, you've got the randomness of words and, and they come to mind. And what you're doing is you, you're fashioning them to create a particular meaning uh, that, you, that you're trying to communicate. And I think that Lindy Lee is doing that as well. She's gathering from the randomness of, of things, the world around her and, and, and creating that semblance of, of order. And I think that resonated with me quite strongly. I think also what resonated with me was embedded in her work is the, the being of a migrant, mm. um, moving from one place, but not just a place. It's, it's a culture, it's a history, it's, it's family to another place. And, and in that dislocation, you have to find yourself again. Um, and as a migrant myself, although there aren't the vast cultural differences that perhaps that Lindy experienced, nevertheless, there is a cultural shift that takes place when you move from one place to another. And it's, and I, I got a sense of that, yes, having to find myself again in this new place, in this new culture with, with different ways of seeing the world, you know, a different paradigm, really. Um, and I guess, yeah, all of that resonated with me. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I, I want to ask you an, another question that connects our works and, and connects um, several of the works that we've heard so far today. Um, obviously, we were all writing from the prompt of Lindy Lee's artwork, but, but several of us were also writing from our own sort of self-imposed limitations in the composition process. We wanted to follow a particular process and, and, and see that through and see what that produced as a creative result. Um, did you find that those limitations inhibited your creative writing or was it in fact productive? I think it was actually productive, to be honest. Um, and I think I kind of intuitively followed the process that Lindy had adopted in, in her, her flung ink and, and in the way that she went into the foundry. And um, I, I remember she said in her lecture that, that she said she wanted all these, these random bits of, 
molten um, brass that were on the floor and and somebody said to her well why do you want that that's just crud but to her it wasn't crud of course you know and I think as as artists as writers we look at our world and we see perhaps things that maybe other people don't see you know they, they just see crowd, crowd and chaos and and we see you know things that, that have meaning and, and we take them and, and shape them and, and represent them in a way that perhaps hopefully reveals to other people the kind of things that we see so and i think that's the connection that we have with artists they see the world they observe the world and they see things that other people don't necessarily see um so yeah i i kind of as i said intuitively kind of fell into uh, constructing this work in the way that, that that lindy approached her work and it was a very different approach for me. I mean, I had written ekphrastic work before, um, but not in this particular way. I was very much kind of driven by her processes, some of the things that she said, and and the way that the work resonated with me. Um, and, And to be honest, I know that usually writing is quite a struggle, but this wasn't struggle. It was actually a really pleasurable experience from, from you know, seeing the work, putting random words down on paper, and then trying to construct something meaningful from that. I love that it was so pleasurable for you um, as you recuperated these things that other people might see as crud. I felt like I was just struggling and producing crud the whole time, but I was happy in the end, of course. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for sharing uh, that valuable insight into your process. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this podcast with work from Curtin University Writers. Our book, entitled Where the Ink Falls, edited by Rachel Robertson, is available from the John Curtin Gallery website if you wish to read these and the other poems and essays in the book. The next podcast in this series focuses on the materiality of art and how writers and visual artists understand the artistic process. This podcast series was sponsored by Curtin University Creative Critical Imaginations Research Network and the John Curtin Gallery. Music from Hi, OK, Sorry. <laughs>